This podcast is brought to you by its financial supporters on Venmo, PayPal, and Patreon. Zach, Breck, Jed, Tom, Alex, Christine, Jeff, William, Mark, Danny, Dave, and Nick. Thank you for helping me to have these conversations and to create this content. Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public, and it's something that I want to share. The following is a conversation with John McWhorter. John is a linguistics professor at Columbia University, an essayist for the New York Times, and the author of Woke Racism. During our conversation, John talks about the genesis of the elect, his word for woke anti-racists, the dangers and flaws of the ideas of the elect, how those ideas are counterproductive to helping black America, how the elect abuse and intimidate those who disagree with them, maintaining standards in American society, the George Floyd murder, the relationship with black men and the police, policies that might help African-American communities, and strategies for having courageous, nuanced, well-meaning conversations about race in America. John is a bit of a hero of mine, and someone I've wanted to interview for years. I admire his backbone and integrity in articulating his criticisms of the anti-racist movement. He has been slandered by many who disagree with him, something he has endured to begin to break our collective spell, and to have a more sane, accurate, and good-faith discussion about our society and our culture. I hope you enjoy this conversation with John McWhorter. John McWhorter, uh, first of all, I just wanted to say thanks for the time. I've been looking forward to this for many, many moons. So welcome to the show. It's good to have you on. Thanks for having me, Dan. You got it. I would love to start at the beginning of the story of the book we're going to talk, talk about today, um, Woke Racism, which has been out for a few months now. Um, if you can, set the stage for why this book was important for you to write. And maybe we could begin by you articulating the ideas that you push back on in the book and address that have become so prevalent in people you term as the elect in our culture. Where did the, those ideas originate from? What's the genesis of that story in your judgment? Well, what happened is that during what was called the racial reckoning back in the spring of 2020, I started noticing that a lot of ideas were being thrown around. A lot of people were being abused and dismissed from their jobs on the basis of an idea that not adhering to a certain kind of doctrine was now considered to be a kind of moral perversion, that America was waking up to something. And it didn't seem like it was an awakening to me. It seemed to me like people with a certain interesting, radical agenda had taken the occasion to suppose that the weird conditions that we were all living under in early 2020, including witnessing the murder of George Floyd, meant that the way they wanted things to be done was the way that it should be done. And their idea is one that stems partly in the ideas of Michel Foucault. It is partly French deconstructionism. It's more directly derived from the ideas of critical race theory as put forth by certain legal scholars several decades ago. And it's all based on one fundamental 
idea, which is that power differentials, especially ones where whites are in power, are an evil and that our most urgent task is to battle those power differentials. Now, many people would agree that you want to battle the power differentials, but there's always been a certain kind of person who's thought that that should be at the center of what we think about, of our art, of the way we think of morality, that all of that needs to be centered more than most people would think. And so in about June 2020, I started to realize that a kind of person who thinks that way. And as an academic, I've known of people like that for 30 years. I never thought they were a scourge. I thought they were an interesting voice from the side. But suddenly that kind of person was imposing the idea that that was truth. And I don't think that their ideas are truth. I think their ideas are one of many ways of looking at the world. There are things that we can learn from them. But what those people are is scary. Starting in April and May 2020, people like that, if they didn't get their way, started calling other people white supremacists on Twitter. I don't know if they knew deliberately how frightening that is to so many people and the effect that it would have, but in the wake of George Floyd and the fact that we were all living in our phones and on our laptops at that time, what happened is that the names that those people call you take a great many people and scare them to pieces. And a great many people who have groceries to buy and careers to forge and kids to raise just figure they would rather pretend to agree with this radical agenda rather than be called something really nasty in the public square. I didn't like it, especially because a lot of this was supposedly being done in the name of people of my color. And most of it was being done by people who aren't my color. I didn't like it. And I thought somebody needed to say something about it. And that's what woke racism was about. Yeah. I know in doing research for this this interview that the the word you have used consistently in your um, you know, initiative to to create this book is the word duty. That this isn't something that you wake up in the morning thinking about. Uh, it's not particularly of interest, it seems to me, even though you're getting all this attention for for the book. Speak to that. You're a linguistics professor. You know, I've followed your work for for many years. Um, how did someone like yourself feel the urge or the need to get involved in this discussion in the first place? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And I am a person, quote unquote, like myself, <laughs> in that <laughs> I am not what many people understandably think. A lot of people think that I wrote woke racism because I want to appeal to the sensibilities of white people who are looking for a black person to tell them they're not racist. They think that I'm courting the right, the, the white right wing. And I get why they think that. And I have a history of contrarian race commentary. But no, that canny operator that they see has nothing to do with me. I'm a linguistics professor. And unlike some professors who get into punditry, I don't mean this as a pop shot, but I genuinely love being a linguist and I still do it. I still write academic linguistics papers. I have this whole life that nobody who reads the New York Times, you know, would ever have any reason to engage. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a linguist geek in real life. And, you know, in the room I'm sitting in, I've got musical theater cast album LPs behind me, about 300 of them. If people could see what was on the walls, I'm not a race hustler, but it was absolutely a duty, I thought, to speak out against this because I think a great many Black people of all levels of life disagree with this new orthodoxy, but you don't hear from them as much because what you hear from mostly is Black people who happen to be academics, writers, and in the media, where there's a 95% bias towards this 
radical agenda. And by radical, I don't mean blowing up a building, but the idea being that we need to really hit a whole restart in society before there can be black success. I don't believe that, but that is what most people who have a certain kind of pulpit do believe. And I just thought in order to speak against this, a person, first of all, has to be black because anybody white who speaks against it is going to be called a racist. And that just shuts the whole conversation down. Now, people can easily say that I am a reverse racist, that I am a white supremacist, that I don't like myself. But as I say in the book, to tell you the truth, nobody really believes that. That's something that you throw at somebody because it sounds good. But nobody really thinks that I'm a white supremacist. Nobody really thinks that I hate myself. It doesn't stick as much. And so I thought I have to be black. And then I also thought, I can't be too young and I can't be too old. What really occurred to me, I, I was sitting on a sun porch when I decided, wow, this has to be a book. It's not just an article. I thought, I'm not Coleman Hughes. God bless Coleman Hughes. He is a brilliant person, but he's not 30 yet. And so it's easy to say, well, he hasn't lived. And I know that because I was just past 30 when I started doing this. And the big thing was he's too young to be, to be trusted. Well, now I'm not young, not old, but I'm 56. But then if I were older, if I were Glenn Lowry and I'm past 70, I'm from another time. I'm too old to understand what's really going on. I'm not that old yet. And so I figured it needs to be somebody who's middle-aged and, you know, probably middle, middle-aged. And you can't call me old yet. You know, my hair isn't gray, <laughs> but I'm not a kid either. And I thought, really, there's only one person like that. You know, there's this heterodox black crew right now. Of that group, they're the ones who are younger than me and then the ones who were, quote unquote, old men. I'm the one who's kind of in the middle. And I thought I'm the one who has to write the book. And I think it's hit exactly the spot that I wanted it to for exactly those reasons. And we'll just see, you know, where the leaves fall. Yeah. I, I want to, I've heard you say this before in interviews that, and this is a very nuanced discussion that we're going to have. One, I've heard you concede, obviously racism still exists and it still exists in America. Um, two, that they, there are inequities in our society that are obvious to this day, and three that you support policies or um, you know some potential government action to try to rectify past wrongs. I've heard you answer this question in prior interviews, but I think it might be helpful just to set the stage for this discussion today. From your perspective, from your perspective, how how racist do you think America is currently in 2022, which is when we're having this conversation? Not enough to justify the tenor of the usual discussion. I think many people who think of this as a society slashed through with bigotry, frankly, need to spend some time living in some other societies. And I think they could use some historical perspective. But yes, on the private level, there are non-Black people who think of Black people as inferior, if that's the kind of racism that we're mainly concerned with. I am a very historically minded person. And so my thought is always, what was it like in 1960? And because I'm a little older, I even think, what was it like when I was in college? And it's much, much better now. But still, yeah, there, there is racism. There are problems Black people have that are traceable to racism in the past, sometimes the present. I would say more the past, but sometimes the present. That's the systemic racism. Those things are real. My issue is not whether those things are real. Many people are on the edge of their seat waiting for somebody to say, there's no racism. So they can say, yes, there is. <laughs> well, no, I, I am quite aware. It's just, what do you do about racism? And I will openly admit that to a point, I think when it comes to the social racism, many of us need to learn to look down upon it. 
If somebody seems to not think black people are quite their equals, as far as I'm concerned, they have just, if I may, they have, they have passed gas. It's like, why in the world would I feel hurt by this? But if we're talking about the deeper issues, what black America needs, how to fix systemic inequities, then yeah, the government needs to help. There's a point at which you can't say people need to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps and shape up. That's not intelligent social policy. The question is what we need to call for and how. And there, there's where I disagree with a lot of the current orthodoxy. Yeah. Now, you you term the, the term that you use to describe the people that the book is really designed to push back against is the elect. And I so much of your book and so much of why I think what you do matters is kind of an idea confrontation. What are the ideas generally in your mind that the elect hold that you find not just wrong? And I think this is a key point in studying your work. It isn't just that the ideas are wrong. It's that they're dangerous and that they're counterproductive in actually helping the people that they espouse an interest in helping in the first place. Speak to that if you can. Yeah. The elect are defined by a trait where your eyes roll backwards in your head, even hearing the beginning of it. But it really is it really is the issue. It's that person who confuses you at a party. It's that person who takes over the, the, the faculty meeting. It's that person you see on MSNBC where you can't quite wrap your head around where they're coming from. Whenever you get that feeling of, yes, there is injustice, but this person seems to be exaggerating it. And I'm not sure why they're calling for this kind of solution. It's power differentials. And you have to listen for people like this because often they use the word power in a very loaded way. Power has a capital P. They're very concerned with power. If you are the kind of person who believes that battling power differentials should be at the center of everything, you're an elect. If you feel that it should be at the center of everything to the point that anybody who doesn't appear to agree with that deserves abuse and dismissal, that's the elect. That sounds so technical, but that's the point. And why I think the elect are dangerous is because as human beings with the elect, often what they think of as battling power differentials is just showing that they know they exist. On the ground, it's less we're going to go out and fix what power differentials have done than we are going to show that we know that the power differentials exist and are unfair. And that means that you get something like very briefly Black kids tend to have trouble on standardized tests. 50 years ago, a civil rights leader would have said, how do we get the black kids better at the tests? Today's elect say the black kids aren't as good at the test. That must mean that the tests are racist in some way. There's a power differential that they're suffering on the, 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 the low end of. And therefore, what we do is we show that there are power differentials and we get rid of the test. Because the test is racist. And there, we've done a good job and everybody you know, has a glass of Chardonnay. That's the elect. And it's dangerous because not only does it keep black kids from getting better at the tests, which they're going to keep running up against, but to say we're going to get rid of the test because black kids aren't good at it is one millimeter from saying. Because what the tests do is assess abstract intelligence. Mm. What the tests are is that. That's what the test is. And black kids can't be expected to do it. You're saying that black people are dumb. Now, if I bring that up, I'm a contrarian. No, I'm just making perfect sense from A to B, but we're not supposed to talk about it because the elect are more interested in showing that power differentials exist than in addressing what you do about it. So these people are dangerous because too often, because we're all human, it's easier to make a show than to actually commit an action. 
They end up basically posing, posturing, showing that they're good people, and they end up being less concerned than they think they are with the actual welfare of Black people living real lives. Yeah. I think it's extremely important to paint the picture of what the world might look like in five years, 10 years in the US if there isn't a successful pushback against some of these ideas. And you allude to some of that in the book. I've heard you speak to that in many of your podcast interviews. You just spoke to that a little bit here. What else might happen if books like yours, if conversations like this don't happen, aren't successful, don't begin to change some of the momentum that I think both of us have probably seen in the country in the last couple of years? That's an interesting question, Dan. What is the coming dystopia? And I I think about it because in some realms, I'm getting the feeling it's actually going to happen. In 10 years, and it really would not 20, but 10, you would have most academic subjects in the humanities and social sciences, and to an extent, the hard sciences, diluted out of an idea that their main commitment should be battling power differentials rather than the 25 other things that all of those subjects are about. The world of theater would become obsessed with only that rather than what theater is supposed to be about. I'm really worried that that's actually going to happen. And theater does matter. And not just because it's one of my hobbies. We will have in companies and organizations around the world, equity having been sought by putting brown people into positions that they weren't trained for and or where their only qualifications are that they're interested in battling power differentials. But it'll weaken the efficacy of the corporations in question. Our arts will be narrow and politicized in a way that is reminiscent of what happened to the arts in communist Russia. All of that could happen. And there'll be a general sense in society that Black people are valuable as object lessons in how you battle power differentials and as symbols of what happened to us in the past rather than our being treated as people with dignity. And most people will, although they won't say so out loud, think that Black people simply do not have the stuff to truly compete because we're never asked to, and it's considered the height of moral evolution to have us refrain from serious competition out of penance for slavery, Jim Crow, redlining, and George Floyd. That is a world that I honestly think the elect want. They would think of that as a brave new world. I think almost everybody else agrees that that would make no sense and that we've had endless political discussions for 2,000 years showing why that would not be a good world. But we have to have the guts to let the elect know this, even though I'm going to use a really another graceless analogy. It's like squid that shoot black ink. When you annoy them, they're going to shoot that black ink all over you. They're going to call you a white supremacist. They're going to call you names, the sarcasm. We've got to learn to put up with that, because if we don't, these people are going to have their way and it's going to be a world we don't recognize. Yeah. You know, so much of how we have gotten here, in my judgment, is rooted in fear. Um, And the perfect storm of the historic race relations in this country and so many people you know, even in my my family that really want to do well, uh, you know, they're, they're very, you know, I was raised in the Rust Belt in uh, Northwestern Pennsylvania on uh, Martin Luther King speeches. And the only person my entire family um, put posters up in our basement and all over our house for was Barack Obama. You know, my mom used to weep watching him speak. Uh, and I know that happened all over the country. Uh, you know, he, he's the only person I ever voted for that I took pictures of um, 
the the ballot uh, because it was just such a formative moment. And I witnessed, you know, this movement that's that's going on and the capacity for people to fall on the sword to play the martyr because they want to be a part of improving society. You know, they're 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 interested in rectifying the past. And it is such a perfect storm in my judgment in how we navigate this because of the fact that I think deep, deeply well-meaning, largely white Americans do want to do something to try to rectify the past. And they don't quite have the software yet built in their head as to understand, like, where are we right now? They know that ghettos exist. They know that there are um, you know, performances in a, a lot of black communities in, in the country that are not doing particularly well, but they, when they're confronted with this, um, the, you know, the ideas of the elect, they're, they're apt to just acquiesce and agree. And they don't quite know what to do or how to frame a, that argument. And that's a long way of me just presenting that to you to ask for, you know, in your experience, what is the what is the nuanced way? What is the ethical way to begin to have conversations like that that are uncomfortable? As you said, people have mortgages, they have families. They know this is ripe for being canceled, for getting their reputation destroyed. How do people try to navigate that um, to, to, to try to add some sanity to this conversation generally? Well, you know, one thing that I think people need to do in that situation is, first of all, resist anybody, whatever their color, who tells you that the solution to our problems is to change what we think of as standards. There's room for that on the sidelines. But what people are asking for is that whenever there is any kind of inequity, we assume that the previous system was biased against Black people in some way, such that we need to change what we think of as achievement, what we think of as qualifications. That never works. And there's a history lesson in it, actually, because 50 years ago, was it 50 years of getting on 60 years ago, original affirmative action was that you took black kids out of the ghetto and put them in high performance schools. The idea was this is fair and we're going to change our standards of admission and we're going to do our best to get these kids through. It almost never worked for reasons you can understand. And didn't the reason it didn't work was not racism to any appreciable degree. It's that you have to usher kids into that sort of thing more gradually. You have to change what's going on with them from the beginning of their lives, not change the standards. And so to the extent that we're being urged to say that math is racist because it forces you to get the right answer and it's hard. That's got to go. And then in the meantime, everything that we should concentrate on is what the old time civil rights leaders sought, including King, which is how do we make it so that black people who are underserved can do their best and have whatever their best is pay off? That's what's fair. There shouldn't be obstacles that keep somebody from trying their best according to what we all know are standards and having it not pay off. And so I say, for example, that there's a war on drugs that has a way of picking off young black men from underserved communities. Because if you are a young black man, you went to a lousy school, you've never been beyond your neighborhood, what are you going to do when you grow up? Well, if there's a black market for hard drugs and you can make half of a living, it's not your whole living, but half of a living selling drugs on the street, or if not literally on the street, selling hard drugs, why wouldn't you do that? 
why wouldn't you often, not every guy, but many guys will choose that rather than going out into the wider world that they don't know anything about. And they don't like anybody out in the wider world anyway, because they've never left their neighborhood. And that's, that makes perfect. I would make that choice. I get the feeling if I had grown up poor in a neighborhood like that, I can see how it goes. And it's not the romance of it. It's just that that's a way to make a living. And a lot of your friends do it. And there you go. Well, one way of getting rid of that temptation is for there to be no war on drugs. Then the question is, well, what will those guys do? And that's why I really focus on vocational education. We have to get away from the idea that what those guys need to do is go to four years of college and take courses about Shakespeare. They need to go to two years of vocational school and learn how to fix air conditioners and make about $100,000 a year once they get good at it. That is a way of taking a guy like that No, you don't send him to Swarthmore. He wouldn't be happy there. He wouldn't do well there. He went to lousy schools. That's not the solution. We learned that in 1967. But you teach him to have a thriving middle-class existence without a college education. Maybe his kids will go to college and pretend to like Shakespeare. But that is not what he needs to do. And so to me, that's activism. And the idea is not to tell that guy, shape up and get rid of your gun. No, that, that's, that doesn't work. The idea is, what does that guy need to have a decent life? I think what, people disagree with me about this, and there's room for it. Welfare reform in 1996 made life a lot better for an awful lot of poor Black women. The question after that was, now what do we do about the men in the same communities? For me, it would be that. But to many, that's not enough because it isn't blowing up society from the bottom. It isn't radical enough. It isn't hitting restart. And I understand that. They're people of more left politics than mine. But I don't think that what I'm saying is white supremacist. I don't think that what I'm saying is heartless. And that's what a lot of people miss, because if you're somebody who thinks battling power differentials is everything, everything I just said, whether or not it worked, is uninteresting because it's not battling the power differentials. It's operating within the society we already have. The honest white person needs to make a choice and decide, are you a radical? Do you believe that everything needs to be blown up and we need to start again, including pretending to think that there's no such thing as standards or that standards consist of black people doing what they want to do via intuition and being holistic? Is that standards? And you know, I'm kind of tilting it here? Or do you believe that we work in the society that we have and try to make it better? That's all. So I'm a liberal. I'm not a conservative. I'm a liberal. I'm not a leftist, but I'm a liberal. Yeah. Some of the the propositions, I mean, you just articulated this related to standards and, and math. My, you know, my mom is a, is a math teacher and taught inner city kids for the last 15 years. I, I think that is a, um, you know, once it's pointed out something that even she she, I think, certainly would concede that we have to have standards. You know, there. I, I heard you speak to this in, a, in another interview that you did. That it almost seems like some of the ideas that are being propagated here related to, um, well, you know, punctuality is is really just a, a white concept. Um, objectivity is something that is being imposed by um, a white supremacist culture. It really isn't applicable to all races. That if you take those ideas in. And they actually take over a subcategory of the American population. It's almost as though they are designed to make that group fail in real life. You know, the the um, the, the 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 picture was was um, stated. The story was stated that you know, if if you have a doctor's appointment and you show up two hours late, you know, you're not going to get surgery that day. Um, tease that out a little bit. What what are some of those the the aspects of um, the ideas of the elect that are being 
granted or uh, encouraged for you know, black communities generally to to believe in that really might actually very well be counterproductive in their real lives. It's so interesting to see those sorts of things being espoused, especially by white writers at this point, when so much of it is just a shout away from outright racism. Yeah, you can't teach people that those are proper ways to be in a world that's always going to work the way that it does. And it's it all comes down to the same thing. And I hate to be monotonous. The reason any of those prescriptions would look remotely plausible is because there's a certain kind of person who thinks that you're supposed to battle the power differentials. And under that analysis, punctuality and exactness and the like are impositions by Northern and Western Europeans. That's not the way most of the world does it. Oh, that's interesting. I I wonder what they think of as most of the world. But the idea is that that's something that Norwegians and Germans and Brits do. That's an imposition. Why don't we go back to the holistic, intuitive, communistic way that African people exist? And, you know, the truth is, one, you're going to miss your surgery appointment. Two, under that analysis, you're never going to learn to actually do surgery, except with a needle and thread. You have to to achieve, especially in modern society as it is now, exactness is not something that we can do without. And yet I think that this kind of person who is so narcotically obsessed with battling what white people impose from on high, and right now I'm thinking of a white person, not a black person in espousing this, what I really think they think, and I don't think they've thought it out, but I think for them, the way it's supposed to be is that black people jam. I get the feeling what they most value about black people is the way black people move to a beat that Black people have a certain relationship to music. You might extend this to athletic prowess and maybe even something else, and we all know what I'm talking about. But the idea is that Black people jam. Black people feel a beat. They feel it. And there's a charisma. There's an energy, as it's often put. Oh, look at their energy. And that's what Black people are. And you know what? I find that condescending. I find that condescending even to the kind of Black person that seems to embody that kind of thing. And I think that most of the people in question aren't really thinking through what the end game would be. They're going by something that they viscerally enjoy, which is that black people are supposed to dance while white people are supposed to invent things. And that's nice, but it's racist, even though it's woke, hence a certain book. Yeah. I I know you live in New York City. And I think for people who like my parents, like the people I grew up with in Northwestern Pennsylvania, who live in predominantly white areas, don't maybe visit metropolitan areas that have massive black communities, there isn't consistent exposure on their end where they you know, get a sense of what the zeitgeist is like in black communities in 2022. This is another story I heard you say in a prior interview where you were riding the subway and you said, you know, we're making the observation that in New York, people don't drive, they take the subway collectively and you get to overhear just day-to-day conversation between normal people. Constantly, yeah. Constantly. And uh, there was an advertisement for a variety of different books that was being displayed on the subway, all of which were kind of falling in line with the ideas of the elect. And a, you know, it looked like a, a black couple with a child. The woman said, you know, those are all liberal books. Mm-hmm. Why don't why don't they ever write the other thing? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, black community, like any communities of massive numbers of people, are not a monolith. There isn't one 
you know, caricature that you can really accurately convey that will capture the entirety of their worldview, their their desires, their outlooks. What's your assessment of you know, Black America right now? I think you said this is something that Glenn Lowry once kind of woke you up to, which is that you know two thirds of of the Black community in in the U.S. are doing rather well from his perspective. You know, they they're in the middle class. They they don't lament the state of things. They certainly are not interested in upending all of society. I think that's an incredibly important aspect to this conversation of recognizing that you know, something like the majority or more than the majority of, of Black America would be appalled, really, at these, these ideas taking over society. I just want to set the table for you to respond to that in, in terms of your, your take on what you know what the state of black america is currently yeah it's um it's a thing that you see which is a certain kind of black commentator crowing on twitter or somewhere that they are the the people who black people are listening to and that the more heterodox people including you know me by implication are not who anybody's listening to we're not representative and that couldn't be more wrong especially not today it simply isn't true that most black people think the way what Glenn and I call the people with three names think. And, and those people really think that. And it's because they mostly only know each other and non-writerly black people who think like them. But that kind of person, you know, the rhythm of their name tends to be all of those people think that they are speaking for black America in general. And really, if you went down into a black crowd watching Barack Obama talk, or if you go to a black barber shop, or if you're on the subway, you find that no, that's not that's not the case. There's a way of looking at blackness that is typical of people with PhDs and degrees in journalism who all tend to flock together. And you know, if you're at an event, the kinds of people who come to see you and talk to you afterwards are probably the kinds of black people who are like you. And so you get the feeling that that's all there is. It's just not true. It's not my experience in real life. It's not what I overhear. It's not what I grew up with. And it's not who I hear from. And I don't only hear from light-skinned, bow-tied, Republican voting, weird Black people. No offense to people who actually fit that category, but you know what I mean. It's not the only Black people who, like you, are kind of different. No, a lot of Black people. And that's something that doesn't get out as much. And that story about the couple on the subway, I forget where I said it, but I've been noticing it's kind of getting around. And so I want to refine it a little bit. I would peg that couple as probably Dominican. They weren't Black, um, which actually, same thing. These were people who, another thing about it is that they were not, say, 41 and giving the appearance of living in Park Slope. It wasn't that. These were people who probably hadn't gone to college, was my sense, from diction and clothing and and demeanor. These were probably Washington Heights Dominican people, and they had their baby. I would put them in their 20s. And so the person who said it had kind of a Rosie Perez accent. And yet that person, you would expect that Dominican person to have these, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da-da views. No. And she just said to try to imitate her without cartoonishness. I was listening to them talk about all sorts of things. And she saw these five and she said, those are all liberal ass books in that accent. This is a person who is by no means a Ph.D. who grew up in some gated community. And I thought, you know, the funny thing is that she's typical. She sees through this just like anybody else. She's not unusual. She's not some 
card-carrying conservative. I doubt if she was extremely churchy or something like that. She could just see the bias. It's just that you don't necessarily have a sense of it if you only follow what people say in slate. And so, yeah, there's a distortion. And woke racism, I'm sure, is seen as something some peculiar Black person thinks. But people should know that I hear from countless Black people all over the country who are saying that they understand it. I'm not saying that they're calling it the Bible, but they understand it. And I think that should be known. Woke racism is not a book that was only written to uncomfortable white people looking for absolution by no means. Yeah. You know, if, if there were embers in our society that launched the, the elect into additional prominence, you know, I, I don't know that we can really have this conversation without talking about the importance of the George Floyd mur- murder. Um, both for its, you know, how horrendous it was, but also the time and the place in which it occurred, right? This is the, if I remember correctly, the summertime in the middle of the pandemic where everyone is at home and an outright murder by a white cop against a black man is all over the world. And it was interesting for me to watch the reaction that people had to that. You know, it's, the gruesomeness of that act is its own terrible mark in American history. The conclusions reached from that moment were a, a kind of astonishing to me to, to see. And I, I know you talk a lot about the importance of uh, the, the relationship between the Black community, especially Black men and police in general. And I, I think it's it's important to really get nuanced about the state of uh, and the frequency of black people being uh, murdered by white police. You have said this many times in prior interviews that a black man in America is many, many, many times more likely to be killed by another black man than a white cop. This is a very sensitive subject all of the these topics that we're talking about are, i think are sensitive and it's it's one of the things one of the reasons why i have such admiration for you because of your willingness to address a lot of this head on what is the state you know for for people who see something like the george floyd mur- murder and just jump to the largely understandable conclusion that this is just happening every day this is a fact of um, of life for black men in america that they they should uh, reasonably fear for their life every time they walk out the door that some racist black or white man, white cop is going to kill them. What, what's, what's the reality of the situation as best you can understand it in terms of the, the risk, the, the frequency of black men being killed by, by white cops and, and maybe more generally just the relationship of the cops to the black community in general right now? Well, you know, Dan, the, um, the, Worst sticking point on the race debate is the cops. And one of the saddest things about all of this is that the news is much better than anybody tends to hear from the mainstream media. And yet I've learned that the kinds of people who matter in terms of shaping what's called opinion simply won't won't hear the truth, which is this. Many, 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 many more white men are killed by the cops each year than black. When it happens to a white person, you almost never hear about it. I really can say never. That's 
beginning to change a tiny bit. And I dare say it's partly because of people like Glenn and me complaining. But for the most part, if a white guy gets iced by a cop for no real reason, you're not going to hear about it. You hear about it if it's a black guy, even though it happens much, 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 much less. Now, the response to that from informed people is that still black men are killed disproportionately to our representation in the population. That must mean that racism is behind the amount that black men are killed. But there's a response to that. Black men are killed about two and a half times more than you would expect based on proportion in the population, two and a half times more. Now, there's another configuration. Black people are about two and a half more times likely to be poor than white people. Those two numbers are not parallel for no reason. Poverty brings you into contact with the police in a way that almost nothing else does. More black people are poor proportionately. That means that black people get killed by the cops disproportionately. And it's interesting that it's exactly to the extent that we are more poor. So it's not the racism, it's the poverty that comes into it. Now, if you want to finesse it a little more, studies show that cops do tend to be meaner to black people in terms of how they talk to black people, pushing black men up against the wall, that sort of thing. Yeah. And you can imagine that that would be the case. There is racism in the world, but all the statistics indicate that when it comes to taking someone's life, I would think of this as good news because it wasn't true 50 years ago. When it comes to taking someone's life, cops are more hesitant. And if anything, according to not one, but two studies, the cops are a little more likely to kill white people. And then you have to go back to people remembering many, many, many more white men are killed by the cops each year than black. Those are the facts. And so yeah, I was sitting here, um, Glenn, my conversations with Glenn have always had a certain following, but there was this real jump in the spring of 2020. And you know, you never know when things are going to change when it's happening. I remember just sitting at this desk on some afternoon and thinking we were doing one more talk, but it was after George Floyd. And I told Glenn, you know, we often have a little conversation before the taping. Some of the things that we do in the taping are a little more planned than it looks. You know, neither one of us are actors, but often we know where we're going to go. Like if Glenn's going to do one of his rants, like sometimes we'll say, so then you'll do one of the screams, right? You know, it's a little bit planned. So we had talked before and I said, you know, Glenn, we have to really step up for this talk because this George Floyd thing is really throwing things. And neither of us knew how much. This is like April, I think. But I said, this is serious. We have to address it head on. And when we had that conversation, I remember asking. I haven't looked at it since then. But I said, with George Floyd, what people are going to say is that despite all the statistics, this guy, he's killed with the cop standing on his neck. Doesn't that seem like there's something particularly racist about that? But I said, Glenn, you know, we don't know. And I said, the interesting thing to know would be, has a white person died that way? Because we yeah. don't know. And I made up this person, I think I called Nils Olson. And I said, would Nils Olson not be, because he's it's Minnesota, would he not be killed that way? And it turned out there was a Nils Olson. It was in Texas, but it was Tony Timpa. I had never yeah. heard of that person. And ever since then, he's become a little bit of a name. And I dare say that it started with Glenn's and my conversation. He was killed under very similar conditions four years before. Nobody ever heard a damn thing about him. But that isn't discussed. I mean, technically, why isn't Tony Timpa's face being painted in murals on the side of convenience stores? But no, because he was white. It was just seen as life sucks. 
When it happens to George Floyd, it's the stain of racism that runs throughout the American fabric based on an analysis that has nothing to do with what the statistics are. And when you announce the statistics, well, you're just ignored. That is not because people are mean or stupid or obnoxious. It's because those statistics are not compatible with battling power differentials. If it's not about battling white power, nobody wants to hear it. That's the elect. That is the stranglehold that that way of looking at things has on how we talk about very important things in the media. And so, yeah, I've been learning from Glenn over the past several years about the cop situation. I used to think the cop situation was the exception to everything. I thought that situation really is a remnant of the way things used to be and gradually learned that it isn't true. But I've learned that there's no point in trying to get that truth across to a certain segment. The name of that segment is the elect. However, the elect want the rest of us to ignore those realities, too. And that's what I find difficult to support. Yeah. You know, I have very close friends of mine who are, you know, to to use your term, the elect, who are facing very difficult interpersonal confrontations with, um, you know, either close friends or, or girlfriends or fiancés who have taken on a lot of the ideas of, of the elect, maybe not wholesale, uh, but m- many of them have really take, taken root in their identity. And it's, it's at the point where it often is risking the relationship itself. It is of that importance, that level of importance that you know, long-term, years-long relationships have the potential to, to blow up. You, know, you, you were saying earlier about how you know, people need to kind of just grow a backbone in being called names. That has happened to me you know, publicly and at, at dinners where I will be called a white supremacist. You know, last year, I had Daryl Davis on my show, um, who is a mu- black musician who went around the country for 30 years, basically having dinner with members of the Ku Klux Klan. And he threw basically love and dialogue Dozens of them ended up leaving the clan, giving him their robes on their way out. There's a great documentary about his life. And one of the people who he he changed was the former Grand Dragon of the Tennessee Ku Klux Klan. I met Daryl at his house in Maryland, and he called this man, Scott Shepard, um, who agreed to talk to me. And I, I talked to him a few months ago. You know, he was a white supremacist. You know, he he actually he was a member of an organization that explicitly had white supremacist views. And I'm worried a little bit that we are beginning to forget the difference between a truly uh, an actual racist and someone who is just sort of racist by default. And that seems to be the spirit of the times right now, where if you are someone who looks like me and you don't acquiesce to some of the ideas of, of the elect, if you do push back in any, any way, that's the first move. It's, it's to basically annihilate your reputation and to make you persona, persona non grata, someone who cannot be dealt with. What advice would you give outside of just you know, putting up with that, you know, putting yourself in a position where you can um, tolerate that kind of reputational tar- being tarnished reputationally what would you say to you know let's specifically to white america who agrees with you and wants to be a part of a sane conversation in the country they don't want to lie 
Um, but they, they're, they're just scared. What do you, what, what's the advice you would give to prepare them for conversations that might be coming their way? <laughs> well, you know, I use an analogy in the book and I always worry about it because I think people think I might be dog whistling to physical violence, but sharks, it's going to turn out this isn't true, but you always hear that with sharks, you can bop them on the nose and they'll go away. Let's say that that's true. I compare these people to sharks. You have to bop them on the nose. Nobody bops them on the nose. Everybody just lets them bite. But if you bop them on the nose and tell them, no, I don't think I'm a racist. You're not going to convince me otherwise. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. I'm concerned with black people too, just differently than you. Then you can watch them swim away. And when they swim away and it strains the analogy, that shark is going to go right on Twitter that you're a white supremacist. And, you know, for some people that that will be intolerable if that would lose your job and you have kids to feed. Okay. But if really what it would be is that a few dozen people would say mean things about you on Twitter for about five days, you know what? It passes. And needless to say, I know that from experience and I see it with other people. And if you really know that you are doing good and you have a bit of a stomach, it passes. And I'm looking at it happening to other people because now people tell me about it. And sometimes it's more than four or five days, but often that kind of person frankly, gets off on all the yelling and the screaming in the theater, and they enjoy showing one another that they are battling white power differentials by ostracizing the transgressor. But after a while, they do move on. You know, Nobody wants to sit and do that for three or four years, except in the most egregious cases. And in the meantime, if that kind of person gradually learns that they can't get what they want by calling people white supremacists on Twitter, then they'll just sit back down to the table And so I think that people need to realize, what do I need to do if I want to be a true ally to Black people? Everybody needs to get past the idea that being an ally means exempting Black people from standards because Jim Crow. That's ding-dong reasoning. It's all about showing how goodly you are rather than helping the people. And so I outline at the end of the book, and I think some people think it's oddly terse and that I don't care, but no, I think that these three things would work. No war on drugs, foster vocational education, overturn the educational school orthodoxy that says that you teach kids to read by exposing them to a lot of print and teaching them to be creative rather than teaching them how to sound out letters. As wonky as that sounds, that does in an awful lot of poor black kids from non-book lined homes. Do those three things. Basically make it so that, stop it, make it so that school works from the beginning Make it so that if you don't want to go to college, you have vocational school waiting at the other end and take away the temptation of making half of a living on the black market selling drugs by there being no such black market. That could turn black America upside down in a generation, in part because if there is no war on drugs, there is about 90 percent less cops in your neighborhood. Most of the reasons that the cops over patrol underserved neighborhoods is either looking for drugs or things connected with drugs, guns, theft, addiction, etc. Take away the war on drugs and there'd be no reason for the cops to be in most of those neighborhoods most of the time. And so that would do an awful lot. I consider that to be very much allied with black people who need help. Instead, you listen to certain usual suspects saying that what you really need to do to be an ally of black people is to change our standards of what it is to be a responsible person, to change our standards of what it is to achieve, and to pretend that all of that makes sense, including allowing a certain kind of black person to vastly exaggerate what racism is and what its effects are. 
to pretend that impact matters over intent, that if any black person says that they feel any way about anything that anybody says, they must be listened to whether or not they're making sense. And you're supposed to walk off quietly thinking that black people must not be very bright, but at least on the surface, thinking that you've been an ally because you didn't make that person unhappy. None of this is treating us as adults. And so I think everybody ought to think, am I committed to some aspect of a real agenda? Maybe mine is too terse. Maybe you have other things, but not this new business of anti-racism being changing standards. No, that has never worked. And just because somebody advises it who has dreadlocks and wears a suit at the same time, that's not a reason that they're right. You listen to the reasoning. Don't let that person scare you. And that's what I'm urging in the book. I know we're getting short on time. And uh, before we end this, I just want to again say, and I think I speak for many people who are familiar with your work, how much admiration I have for what you've done and the work you do and your insistence on writing this book and being a public face for this kind of a pushback. And I I know we talked about the potential dystopia and maybe as the final question, I would like to know what's the hope here, right? I mean, if, if... is there a successful pushback going on in your judgment? And if five, 10 years from now it is successful, what's the country look like then? Well, you know, Dan, I want us to go back to the grand old days of 2019. You know, all of that is looking so wonderful now, not just because of the pandemic. And, you know, I think there is a pushback. I'm feeling confident in saying it at this point. Woke racism is me writing steaming mad in the summer of 2020. And people were being pushed out of windows left and right, called terrible things for reasons that didn't make any sense. It was endemic after about April of 2020. Here we are in the beginning of 2022. A lot of that stuff cooled down in 2021. And a lot of it was because people started pushing back. I assumed that people were going to have the basic resilience to start pushing back against something so ridiculous. And they did. And so it's getting to the point where people are sanctioned for something, but they hunker down and weather it. People are sanctioned for something, but their organizations like FIRE and FAIR, for example, that are dedicated to protecting in particular professors who end up in the, you know, being pulled up by the short hairs by this sort of thing. And in general, more and more people are realizing a certain peculiar kind of person is assailing me based on a very narrow agenda. And my job is to stick to my guns and wait for this to pass. Because if I don't, I'm not being true to myself. I think more and more people are beginning to realize that it doesn't make you a racist not to agree with radical people with a very narrow agenda. And so, yeah, I'm hoping that my book was one small part of a general pushback that means that we can go back to the radical left being one voice at the table. And that voice is always going to be louder in academia and the media, but it should be one voice. Those people are not equipped to create a society on their own, and we need to stop pretending that they are. Yeah. John, thank you so much for doing this, man. It was really great to meet you. I wish you all the best. Thank you, Dan. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible. 